We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1861, the Lincoln administration declared that the Confederacy was nothing but an illegal rebellion, a criminal conspiracy whose agents were not entitled to any legal protection. From its birth, the Confederacy regarded itself as a full-fledged independent nation. Both were wrong. Even Lincoln admitted the rebellion was too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, and the most ardent rebel knew that Britain, France, and the rest of the world did not recognize the Confederacy. So what then was it? Both governments would have preferred not to answer the question, but both found their own laws required an answer. We'll look today at three fascinating legal cases that forced the issue in 1861 with Mark A. White's author of The Confederacy on Trial, The Piracy and Sequestration Cases of 1861 today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. If you are a parent of a child with autism, you know that there can be day-to-day struggles emotionally. Now you can share insights and outlooks with the Mother Cub Show. Your host, Susan Lynn Perry, a parent of a child with autism, will bring a new perspective to the subject from diagnosis to effective treatments that are working. Her guests will include professionals, authors, and individuals that will bring wonder and hope to the world of autism. Tune in to the Mother Cub Show, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you for the 200th time, an anniversary show, on a bright and relatively warm Friday afternoon in February 2011 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, 
where, as always, I speak for myself, not for the university, nor will my guest, uh, who is legally trained, speak for anyone other than himself. Uh, we're here to represent just our own ideas, as always. And uh, as you've been hearing over the last uh, uh, few shows, things are, are the same here in Greenville. The budget continues to go up and down. The crisis uh, comes and goes. This this week we find uh, the budget, state's budget crisis is a billion dollars less than before. A billion here, a billion there. Soon you're talking about real money. Uh, it's somewhat like having one's head dunked underwater uh, uh, and then lifted up and you're happy to be breathing again. And then you know next week it's going back down. We'll get some bad news next week. But this week it was sort of good news. So up and down. That's not why you're listening to the show, though. We're here, of course, to talk about... Uh, about uh, the Greenville Stars, about uh, the Greenville Stars over 50 men's team, which, uh, as I reported last week, uh, played in its first tournament this year in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I'm happy to report I did not get injured, nor did any of my teammates, uh, which is all it takes to call the tournament a victory for all concerned. But better still, this week, uh, the Greenville Stars... uh, uh, defeated Greensboro, uh, tied uh, the Old Castle team from Raleigh, and uh, then uh, tied in the semifinals the uh, Real Leold team from uh, Charlotte, uh, and then advanced on penalty kicks to the final. So we actually had quite a good tournament uh, playing four games in two days. It was an insane undertaking. Uh, all members of the team were exhausted for days, including myself. But uh, we lost to Hampton Roads. Uh, a team from Virginia came down for the final, and then we lost to them. But we're very happy. So uh, thank you for asking all of you who have been sending cards and letters about the Greenville Stars tournament. We're really here to talk about the Civil War, though, and that's what we'll do. Uh, we've got good shows coming up in the days ahead. We've got two contrasting looks at the war in Missouri uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, let's see. Next week, our guest... I have to pull a book off the shelf here because I have to see what we've got. Next week, it's Dennis Bowman, Lincoln and Citizens' Rights in Civil War, Missouri. We'll be looking at uh, the case there. And then we've got uh, Mark Geiger taking a different look at the war in Missouri, guerrilla warfare and financial fraud and a unique investigation of the situation there. That'll be on March 4th. And then comes spring break, and I'll be sitting with a little drink with an umbrella in it in my hand and not doing a live show that week. And then we'll resume more, tell you more about it when we get there. March 26th is a Saturday. Uh, If you're around this part of the the world, come to North Carolina State uh, campus in Raleigh for a conference on public history and the Civil War. Uh, And Thomas Mackey, Aaron Mast, and myself will be presenting there, along with a lot of other interesting people. Peter Carmichael, who was just on the show, will be there, and uh, a number of other uh, guests that you will enjoy seeing. Uh, thanks, as always, uh, to Mark Gaffney, who provides the excellent impedimentsofwar.org website that supports the show. Thanks to Chad, our engineer, who I always forget to thank till the show's over because everything goes so smoothly. Uh, if you go to the website, uh, feel free to push the donate button and send some money to the show through PayPal. I will use it to buy books. This week's book was one I got from our university library, which is, I'm sorry to say, shrinking day by day. They're, 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 soon it will be nothing but coffee shops and computer stations uh, and no books left at all. 
and that makes it more necessary than ever to depend on the generosity of listeners and of uh, publishers who send review copies. Uh, but the library came through. East Carolina came through with uh, today's book, which I uh, enjoyed so much. I planned to go out and get my own copy after I returned this one because it, it I, I thought was highly interesting. I won't embarrass our guest by telling him that when he's on, but I'll tell you, listeners, right now, uh, uh, this was it opened my eyes to some new aspects of the war that I think you'll find interesting as well. So let's get to it then. Uh, our guest today is uh, Dr. Mark A. White's. Uh, the book is that uh, he's written a number of books, including one we may talk about a little bit on desertion, but uh, in the Confederacy. But uh, primarily uh, today, one from a few years ago called "The Confederacy on Trial: The Piracy and Sequestration Cases of 1861." We'll find out what those cases were. Uh, Mark, are you there? I'm right here. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I was looking at your biography. Uh, uh, I don't think you and I have met anywhere on the Civil War circuit. Uh, we have uh, not, although we, uh, we have a common uh, colleague, Chuck Calhoun. Oh, yes. Yes, Chuck's right down the hall from me here. Yeah, How I, saw do you know Chuck, Chuck? Uh, I saw Chuck in January at the American Historical Association Conference. Ah, I know he works with uh, with your press, with uh, the University Press of Kansas. Yeah, he does. With, uh, Fred Woodward uh, there, so so maybe there's another commonality. And you you studied with Brooke Simpson at one time. I uh, I did indeed. Uh, he, he's an old uh, co- colleague from Lincoln days of of mine. Well, you and I have a, a similar background. I, I, again, looking at your your biography, we both graduated from from undergrad and then law school at about the same time, eighty uh, three for law school. And then we both thought uh, better of that and went to get our, our doctoral dissertations. But you've gone back. Uh, you're, you're, actually, you're making real money now, I bet. Uh, yeah, uh, and, 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 paying every, and paying the price for it, I promise you. Uh, so, so how did you come to make the, those decisions back and forth? Um, nobody knows until they go to law school um, – what the law is going to be like, and I was absolutely no exception. And I got out in '83, like you said. I practiced for six or seven years, and I just decided I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So um, I was in Austin. I was practicing. Um, I was solo, and I just I went to. Um, I, I said, "Man, I'm 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 going to go back to school. I'm going to teach." Um, I'd always loved military history. I'd always loved the Civil War. In fact, I was sort of a like many of us. I was a child of the centennial of the Civil War because. All that literature started rolling into my house when I was about five or six, and I just I got sort of hooked on it. Um, got my master's at uh, what is now Texas State University, and um, once I once I got there, I just kept on going. I was I was looking around for a place to go. I was living in the West. Um, my wife at the time, her sister was in Arizona, and uh, it seemed like an interesting place to go. So I did a little bit of research and. Uh, I found that Brooks was out there, and I, I kind of checked up on him, and I thought it, it might be a good fit, and it turned out that it was. Um, the return to the law was uh, was a little bit different. I was at Gettysburg College, um, and I was the interim director of their Civil War Studies program. I had been at Auburn Montgomery and left there on a leave of absence, and uh, that job came open, and I had to make a decision as to whether to stay there and apply for it or go back to Auburn Montgomery, and I can just tell you that Gettysburg, that the Civil War, that, that job was the ideal job, and so mm-hmm. I um, I went all in. And um, unfortunately, man, I had the second best hand. So uh, now, so that's is that the position that uh, um, 
uh, blanking out suddenly. Alan Gelzo. Alan Gelzo, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, it was, well, and it was, go ahead. I'd say competing with Alan Gelzo, you're, you're up against the best. Uh, well, see, here was the problem. I mean, and, and you and I are both attorneys, and we both do research, and I did mine. Um, as soon as the job, as soon as the guy that had it quit, mm-hmm. I went and did my research on the Loose Foundation, and I discovered that they had 15 loose chairs nationwide, and that never in the history of the loose chair had the sitting loose professor left, and they continued funding the chair. And that was good for me because Gettysburg was committed to the job. Mm. So I threw all in. Two weeks later, Loose decided we'll stay, and they wanted a senior historian, and I just I didn't have the years. I had a lot of publication. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, had, I think I had two books out at the time, and two more came out, including the one we're going to talk about today, um, within six months. But um, I didn't have Alan, Alan's, uh, I didn't have Alan's uh, seniority, and um, he's certainly you know, awesomely qualified in terms of a Lincoln Scholar. So, you know, that was one of those things where you, know, you, you, you pushed them all in there, and I, I can honestly say that I didn't see that one coming. Ah, well, that, that's, uh, you know, one never knows, I guess. Uh, I, I was teasing a couple of weeks ago with Peter Carmichael, who's now, uh, who is Alan uh, as, uh, Gabor Boritz's job right. uh, at Gettysburg, and uh, how, how Peter and I have applied for the same job uh, uh, twice in the last 10 years, uh, not not with me knowing it, and each time he has gotten it. Um, uh, both times I I wasn't all in. I would say in both cases I was happy where I was, but but applied anyway. And uh, I've learned not to apply anywhere without checking with him first. You know, and, uh, and, uh, uh, that, uh, but you never know, and things work out for the best. Uh, uh, at least uh, I hope they have for you. I know they have. Well, they have. I mean, they have it. That was, and and I have no regrets. That was um, for what I love. That was absolutely the best job I would ever see. And the notion that I would not fully commit to trying to get it at the time, mm-hmm. um, I would, you know, had I done something different, had maybe I gone back to Auburn Montgomery and tried to apply there, um, you know, I, I might have had regrets. But as it is, I, mm-hmm. I have none. Um, it was a, it was an unbelievable experience, and um, you know, in some ways, it, it sort of, it sort of helped define the way I look at the war ever since. Well, you're, you're, uh, the, the, the book. We're going to talk about it and let, let's get to that. Is uh, it, I mean, I, I have a huge respect for Alan, Alan Gelzo. I've, I've known him for uh, many years and, and read all his things, and he, he's uh, clearly at, at the top, as you say, of the Lincoln scholarship world. Uh, but I really enjoyed uh, this book, The Confederacy on Trial, and thought it, it talks about. Uh, it, it does take a different look, and maybe, maybe it's my prejudice uh, coming from a legal background also that made me find this. Uh, as interesting as I thought it was, let's start with just laying out some groundwork for the uh, the listeners. What uh, what are the well? Let's take the piracy section first. Uh, uh, maybe do it sequentially. Um, uh, there there uh, there's so many ways I want to go about this. The Confederacy did not exist legally, according to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Texas v. White, 1869, established that there never was a legal entity called the Confederate States of America whose decisions are entitled to any respect, uh, who are of any legal force at all. So that seems to settle that legal question. What you argue here is that that's well and good to say in 1869 after you've beaten the Confederacy militarily, but in 1861, judges can't say that. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was saying. It, you know, so, Noah Swain had said it was as if it was not, and the reality was it, it was. 
Well, the 1860s, it's the piracy cases that force the Union to, to wrestle with this. Um, what, what, tell us just about what the situation was. What, how, did the, how did the Union come to try uh, Confederate sailors for piracy? Well, the situation, the factual background. Yeah, it was the whole thing was born out of the fact that when the two sides split, essentially the Union got the Navy. The, the Confederacy really had no Navy to speak of whatsoever. And so as, as, the, as the war becomes imminent, um, Davis utilizes an act of government. And what he does is he sends out um, requests or offers of letters of mark. And as you and I know, being lawyers, a letter of mark is something that a government gives to a private citizen. And it, it, the practice dates back hundreds of years before this, but basically it allows a private citizen uh, using his own ship – his own crew, to prey upon the shipping or, or the ships of a particular nation. And Davis, realizing he had no navy of his own, realizing he was probably going to have to confront a blockade, um, sent these letters, this request for letters of mark out and just got an unbelievable response. And, um, you know, people offered, people were sending in saying, I've got a ship, I've got a crew of 40. And two of the... Um, the, the, the entities or, or that answered the call were, uh, would one day become the Jeff Davis, and the other one would be the Savannah. And, um, you know, the, so what we had was we had Confederate citizens form their, own, form their own crews and basically took to the high seas with a letter that basically said, look, uh, this is, this is a, an act of war. It is um, an act of international law, and essentially what I'm doing is giving you permission to prey on union shipping. And so if you put these guys out there, you run the risk that something's going to happen to them. Now, obviously, the worst thing that can happen to them, particularly for the people who are doing the sailing, is that you can get sunk and everybody can die. However, one of the other realities that can occur is that you get captured. And that can happen one of two – that can happen several ways, but one of the two ways – two of the ways it happened were in this instance. One of them was the, the ship just gets taken. The second was, however, that when you go out and seize prizes, you have to do something with them. And so what you normally do is, is as you seize a ship, you take a portion of your crew, you put it on that ship, and it takes it back to, to port. The, it's, it's, it's sold. The proceeds are, are, are disseminated between the captain and the crew. And um, in the case of the Jeff Davis, that's what happened. And what happened was the prize crew, which was only about five, five sailors, um, got themselves captured. And so when they were captured, um, the Union had to do something with them, and that created a real quandary. Because although everybody seemed pretty comfortable with treating everyone as prisoners of war on land, maybe in great part because everybody was wearing uniforms, when they got these Confederate sailors, they weren't sure what to do with them, and the first impulse was what they followed, and that impulse was these guys aren't wearing uniforms, they're not really official soldiers, Therefore, they are classified as pirates, and that's exactly how we're going to treat them. And, and Lincoln had declared that, right? In April 1861, he declared anybody uh, molesting a Union ship under the pretended authority of the southern states uh, would be treated as a pirate. Yeah, he'd been quit. He'd been really, you, you cannot fault him for not being clear. He yeah. made it known that he was not going to respect letters of mark. And that stems back from what you said as, the, as you introduced the show, which was to respect the letter of Mark is, is to, in fact, respect the existence of the Confederacy. 
So right away we have a, a conflict here where the union government has to decide to, to, to try and execute these people or to, in effect, recognize the Confederacy. We'll come back in a minute. We'll talk more about this. Our guest today, Mark A. Weitz, author of The Confederacy on Trial. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market people are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer Tune in to Holistic Answers to Mental Health with your host, Aileen Neely. Let Aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology. You'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress, anxiety, marital issues, infertility, and empowerment. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Mark A. Weitz, author of The Confederacy on Trial, The Piracy and Sequestration Cases of 1861. We're talking about the piracy cases, the crews of the Confederate privateers Jeff Davis and Savannah, captured in 1861 by Union naval vessels and put on trial for piracy. Um, Mark, when the, the Jeff Davis crew or the prize crew uh, that the, the Davis had put aboard a, a merchant ship was captured, uh, they're brought back. They're going to be put on trial uh, in Philadelphia. The first question that comes to mind is, is, can these guys get a fair trial? Who's going to defend them, given that they're representing uh, uh, the enemy at war? Um, you know, obviously the question of a fair trial is, 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 the, is the preeminent question, because it's like you said, how are you going to get a fair trial in a place that essentially um, you're making war against? And I think... The reason I write these books sometimes is because of lawyers. I can't get past it. I am one. Um, you're trained. You're an attorney. And getting a fair trial depends on a lot of things. depends on the court. depends on whether the jury is going to – how they're going to view these men. And to a great extent, there's not a lot that, that lawyers can do about that. But lawyers can stand up. And uh, in the case of both the Savannah and the Jeff Davis, lawyers in the community stood up and said, look – this, you know, if, if we're out here fighting for certain principles, if this is about uh, our government, if this is about our way of life, one of our principles is is that everybody is entitled to a fair trial and everybody's entitled to a defense. So initially, the, 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 the key to them even having a chance at a fair trial was that the lawyers stepped up. And uh, they, they did it in Philadelphia. In, in New York, it was even uh, it was even um, more emphatic. I mean, you had large firms. You had... 
um, guys basically coming out of the woodwork. And the bar actually in New York had come out early on and made a statement that, look, you know, this is the war. We understand that we may get put in a in – a, an uncomfortable position here, but as attorneys, we have an obligation that, that transcends some of this. And so I think that the, the initial key to them getting a fair trial was, was, was obviously going to be lawyers stepping up, and they did so. Um, you know, the judges in these cases, um, I mean, I've been practicing law now for, for 27 years, and the judges in these cases were federal court judges, which just, you know, I've always tended to believe that you do get a little bit more even shake in a federal court just because they're they're appointed for life um that they're they're not politically they're not politically controlled even though i think it would be a mistake to say that these guys did not feel the heat of the politics at the time as far as the jury goes i mean it's just like you said you're talking about pulling a jury from philadelphia the nation's at war the newspapers have been talking about these privateers almost every day um the country was was some of them were genuinely afraid and um, that was going to be a tough ticket. So, so the the defendants are are in trouble. There's no question. They, they've got a, a you know very tough situation they're facing. What? Uh, how, how does the defense argue? What? Uh, one of the arguments, one of the claims they make is, is that there's no jurisdiction. That's a technical one. We can leave aside. Yeah. Um, but the substantive defenses, uh, uh, how do they defend these people who were clearly caught seizing a Union ship on the high seas? The, the, the key to the defense lies in, in, the, in the title of the book. You've got to put the Confederacy on trial. You must raise an issue that essentially you, you can't be trying these guys for piracy because they were not pirates. You, because the problem is this. You can't really defend what they were doing. Obviously, they were out there. They were, make, they were, they were sacking Union shipping. They were, um, you know, most of the time they didn't have, ever have to fire on any of these ships because they were pretty much defenseless merchant ships. So, um, and if you look at the, the history of these two crews, they treated their captured prize, uh, prize crews, you know, with the utmost respect. But what you've got to do is you've got to go to the underlying issue. You can't try me for piracy because I'm not a pirate. I am a Confederate soldier fighting my nation's battles on the high seas, and, and that's how they approached it. And what's interesting about how these cases unfolded is the key to victory will lie in what the judges in those respective cases are going to allow um, the jury to decide. Well, you know, the, the issue comes up about letters of mark, and I probably should have asked this earlier. Um, does the world recognize letters of mark in 1861? Well, here, here's the, the interesting thing is this. There, um, less than a decade before, the world had basically said, no, we're no longer going to well, – put it this way. The, the world is probably a little bit too broad. The European powers had gotten together and signed a treaty basically saying they would no longer recognize them. However, the United States, in its infinite wisdom, refused to sign off. Historically, the world had recognized them. I mean, you can go back in time and see where, um, I think, for instance, in the Seven Years' War, I mean, the French do remarkably well with letters of mark and privateers. So historically, I mean, I guess the oldest one I can think of is probably Sir Francis Drake. You can go back into the 1500s and find them and that the world recognized them, but there had actually been um, a, a convention of European powers 
I believe in the 1850s, and basically said, look, we're no longer going to recognize this. But the United States didn't sign off on it. So when the United States started trying to take the position on the, on the, the, um, the form of international opinion that they weren't going to recognize it, um, and that they wanted these foreign powers to turn these privateers in, the, for, the Spanish, the French, the British all said, no, we're not doing it. Because, first of all, you didn't sign off it. What, they, what, what Spain ultimately refused to do, um, and the Sumter, which was another privateer, discovered this, was Spain refused to allow them to claim prizes in its ports. But essentially, there was, uh, there was still a very, an informal recognition that this was a tool of, of international warfare, but there had actually been a treaty that said, look, we're, we're, you know, those who are signatories to it um, disavow the practice. Unfortunately, the United States hadn't signed it. So, so the United States is now caught. We we had benefited from them in the revolution in 1812, and now now we're hoist by our own petard here. So the the rest of the world does recognize not the Confederacy as a nation, but that there are some belligerent rights attached to these privateers. Correct. Uh, they're they're seizing American ships, and while they may not be allowed to claim the prize in a Spanish port, neither are the Spanish authorities arresting them as pirates. Uh, they're, they're clearly not attacking all the world shipping, just American shipping. Uh, but if the American, that means the American prosecutor, uh, uh, the prosecutor of these pirates, or, or accused pirates, has to be taking the opposite tack that the Confederacy is not a nation, is not... Uh, entitled to belligerent rights, that these people are nothing but private citizens who are stealing people's ships. And that's exactly the position they took. That's, you're exactly right. So, the, well, well what, what happens with, with these, these cases? Um, the cases, it's interesting, because initially everybody went to New York. And what happened is the, the crew of the Jeff Davis is transferred to Philadelphia. That case is tried, and the Savannah is tried, and they literally take place at the same time. And, um, you know, back in the, 18, in the 1860s, court cases were public spectacles. The courtrooms were packed. Uh, the papers covered them daily. There had been a tremendous amount of press. I mean, today, you and I would have tried to maybe, you know, move venue to Mars or someplace like that, arguing that, that I'm not sure there's a place on the planet that we can actually get a fair trial here. But... Um, and, and, and what happens is interesting, and like I said, it went to what the judges allowed the jury to do. In the Jeff Davis case, it was tried in Philadelphia. The judges made the decision that there was no factual issue as to the existence of the Confederacy that, that could possibly be determined by a jury. It was not a nation. They were not going to recognize its existence, and the minute they did that, the five guys on the Jeff Davis, I mean, the, the case is really tried William Smith versus, United States versus William Smith, who was the pilot. Um, Smith and his guys were doomed because all of the dog and pony show, all the discussions about, well, we wore uniforms, we had crews, we had rank, all that went out the window. So there was nothing to it. However, in New York... The judges, and because these were these were capital crimes where you could be executed, two judges sat um, on the bench. The judges in New York determined that the issue of the Confederacy was a fact question, and they were going to allow the jury to resolve that question. And the problem was is that in New York, eight people voted for conviction, but four voted not to, and it hung the jury. 
And so even though they were not acquitted, now the prosecution in New York is looking at having to basically retry these guys under, under a situation to where um, – I mean, think about what happens. Let's say we retry it, we try it with new judges. These judges do not allow that fact issue to be decided, and these guys get convicted. Now the United States, as you're looking at our justice system, you're saying, well, you know, where's the justice in this? I mean, is it just a matter of chance? Is it just you know, re-roll the dice? If you get these two guys, you get a chance, and if not, you don't. So what happens is the Savannah crew gets off. And they, uh, they get off in the sense that they are not convicted. They're, they're, sent, they're sent back to the tombs, which was the prison at that time in New York City, and to await retrial. Now, there were some, some fact differences between the two cases, uh, uh, between the, the Savannah defendants and the Jeff Davis defendants, in particular the way that the Jeff Davis prize crew w- was captured. Uh, that, that seemed to have some effect on, on the jury, don't you think? Yeah, it definitely did, because one of the things that – you know, it, 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 it played on the race issue. Jeff Davis got captured because there was a cook, an African-American cook, on the Jeff Davis who was being taken back. And the reality is, is if that ship had gotten back to Charleston, that man was going to get sold back into slavery. Well, they're, 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 they're out there. The Union frigate approaches. Um, everything is pretty good. And this guy runs up on deck and yells out that this is the Jeff Davis. It's the privateer. Um, it's been seized, and all that hit the press. And so, essentially, the, the Jeff Davis, from a you know, you and I both know that there's 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 law and there's facts, and then there's what everybody decides the case based on. And in this situation, it got it is it was almost impossible for the jury to see past the fact that they were taking this man back into slavery. And and he had been he had been free. He had been on a ship that recognized his freedom. He was a cook. And um, that was going to make the call. I mean, here's the thing. It sh- it had the Confederacy's existence been recognized, it, technically it shouldn't have mattered. But you and I both know that it did, and, and that made a, a big difference. One of the other differences was, though, in the, 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 the Savannah crew was littered. I won't say it wasn't a majority, but you, know, you were looking for good sailors, and, and some of the good sailors were Europeans. And so what you had were men that when they signed on, they knew what this meant. I'm a, it's a letter of mark. I know what I'm doing. I'm not out here being a, a pirate because, you know, European um, seamen understood the difference. So now you've got this added element that you've got guys who, who aren't even – who have no real bone to pick with either side. This is a job. Men, you know – Sailors from generations before me have done this job and never been treated this way. So, yeah, you're right. There were some factual differences that, that clearly played into it. And, and, the, and the defense in the Savannah did an excellent job of arguing that point and, and saying, look, you know, you're talking the North and the South are belligerents with, as to one another right now. But, you know, you need to look at this and how these men looked at it and how the rest of the world looks at it. Because it's not just a question of American law. It's a question of international law. And, and the uh, yeah, with the Savannah uh, defendants, many of them not being American citizens, as you point out in the book, 
under the uh, piracy statute, uh, one of the sections did not even apply to them because the statute specifically said any uh, uh, American citizen who does this, any citizen Correct. who does so, you know, commits these acts is guilty of piracy. They weren't citizens, so they weren't uh, guilty under that particular section. There was another section that did apply. Yeah. So uh, in theory, they should. In theory, you, I guess you could have you could have walked them based on that on that alone. But there was another section that did apply. But yeah, the Savannah was a much more complicated case to try. At least I, I thought so when I wrote the book. Um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Davis just depended so much on essentially a jury instruction. Now, what really decides this, as I read your argument, and certainly fits the, the temper of the times, uh, is the, argue, the final argument is that the war has been going on, but by the time this trial takes place, it's the autumn of 1861, the Battle of Bull Run has taken place, Wilson's Creek, Ball's Bluff uh, have all taken place. And the Union is not taking Confederate POWs off the battlefield, putting them in prison, and saying, we're going to try you, and if you're guilty of fighting against us, we're going to execute you. Uh, we'd have to execute you know, hundreds of prisoners if that were the case. Uh, nobody is doing that. Confederate soldiers are being treated as POWs, and, and the Union soldiers likewise. So the, it seems to me the winning argument, uh, in the court of public opinion at least, is, is you can't treat these people at sea differently than you treat the ones on land. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I think that, that, that in the end, in terms of just uh, of a logical argument and, and you know, if you want to speak legally, an estoppel argument is that, hey, I mean, for these soldiers to be treated as prisoners of war, you've got to give some recognition to the Confederacy, because if not, you know, I'm a rebel either place. You know, I'm either a rebel on land and I ought to be shot for basically treason, or I'm a rebel at sea and you're calling me a pirate. So I think that in 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 many ways that was the that was the one of the biggest arguments that was pushed absolutely from the beginning, and because it was an irrefutable argument. And you know, you're you're not only are are we taking prisoners, but you and I know that they begin to exchange them. That's right. So not only am I a prisoner, but my gosh, I'm 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 worth. One for one, what this Union soldier's worth. So it was, it, it was, it was a really tough argument to get to get by, and I, which I think, um, sort of emphasizes the degree to which this whole Confederate privateer program had had really shocked the Union and particularly the public. I mean, you know, Bull Run, Balls Bluff. Wilson's Creek, I mean, these are battles, they take place, we can look at it, but, uh, you know, the press will go re report on it, you know, the Union did well, the Union, well, the Union didn't do well on any of those, but essentially we had this fight, but, you know, the stories that were coming off the seas, you know, about, you know, private citizens are on these ships, some of them, or all of them, actually, you know, they're carrying cargo, they're also carrying passengers, and so now, as a, as a Union citizen, I get on a ship, it's not a it's not a warship, and I stand a chance of getting stopped. And you know, the Jeff Davis was so was so successful, it would stop ships. And if it didn't like the cargo, and didn't think there was enough money, and he just let it go. So it, it, it the, the, the argument about prisoners of war was unbelievably strong. But I think equally strong in the in the in the in the northern public's mind was the idea that I, John Q. Citizen, could actually be at risk on the high seas. So, so that does again differentiate. Uh, the soldiers and civilians. On top of that, there's there's a question of the the Union blockade, which if the Confederacy is not a belligerent, the question is then, then 
than who was being blockaded. Exactly. Um, but let's shift gears. We'll, we'll finish this segment momentarily and then move to the last one. Um, the the sequestration cases are something uh, that I would guess fewer listeners have heard of. Most of, most people listening to the show have heard one time or another of the piracy cases and might be a little bit familiar with it. Uh, but what was this law that the Confederacy passed in 1861? Essentially, it was um, it was called the Alien Enemies Act, and, and essentially what it did, and if you think about it, it in, in in some ways, it made a lot of sense. What it, what it did was it allowed the Confederate government to essentially gain control of the persons and the property within the geographical boundaries that it claimed to control. It gave alien enemies an opportunity to basically pack up and get out, and it, it basically gave Confederate federal courts jurisdiction to find and seize property belonging to alien enemies, sell it, and, and, and turn that money into the, into the Confederacy's coffers. So at, at one level, it, it was a political act of, of war-making um, designed not only to generate income, but to secure one's internal borders. And in that, in that respect, it made a lot of sense. Well, and you can think of, you know, even short of war, uh, President Carter froze the assets of, of Iran after the revolution. Um, uh, if, if there's, uh, after American hostages were seized, if, if there is uh, an enemy and they've got property in your country, it doesn't seem to make sense to let them take their property and use it to make war on you. Uh, you go ahead and seize it. And that's what the Confederacy is doing here. They're seizing exactly anything, they anything belonging to the Union. Uh, they go further, though, with this act, and that's, that's where the trouble comes in. We'll come back in a minute and talk about how this was enforced and how some Confederate uh, citizens resisted this act uh, in 1861. We'll talk about that with Mark Weitz. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into The Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step -step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. 
Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Mark A. Weitz, author of The Confederacy on Trial, The Piracy and Sequestration Cases of 1861. And we're talking about the Alien Enemies Act of 1861, a Confederate uh, act of the Confederate government, which authorized the Confederacy to seize the property of alien enemies, meaning Yankees, Northerners living in the South, uh, to seize their property. And uh, after giving them, uh, I think, 40 days to, to clear out and take the property with them, anything they leave behind becomes the Confederacies. In addition, any debts owed by Confederate citizens to enemies, to Northerners, uh, according to this act, are no longer owed to the Northerner, but are now owed to the Confederate government. Do I have that right? You do have that right. No. You're absolutely correct. On the one hand, that seems like a logical war-making act. Uh, you don't want your citizens sending money off to the other other country that's, that you're fighting with. Uh, why was this so controversial? It became controversial because, well, actually, you can blame it on us lawyers and, 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 and some other people in there. Essentially, the act flew in the face of, of constitutional protections that had existed in the old Union and... Um, purported to exist in the Confederacy. I mean, all of the obligation for, uh, for me to pay you money, for me to deliver goods to you, if you think about it, the idea of contract is everywhere. So in effect, what was happening was the Confederacy had passed a law that, that on the face of it appeared to be unconstitutional because it basically infringed or, imp- or impeded on the right of contract. And it, it, it basically took the position that we don't care what you had contracted to do earlier, but by virtue of this law, it is now illegal. A lot of guys, not a lot, but the people who spoke out in the Confederacy said that's an ex post facto law. You cannot take something that was legal when done. If you want to say, I can't contract with a northerner now, I can't obligate myself, to, that's one thing. But to go out, pass a law, and, 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 and in effect void contractual obligations, many of them existed for decades. Because if you think about it, um, partnerships are contracts. Corporations are contracts. Almost everything you touch in a commercial sense, bank accounts are a contract between the bank and the depositor. I mean, everything it touched was a contract. And, and people were saying, you can't do this. More importantly, what it did was, is that for the, for the Confederate government to basically have known where all this existed would have almost been an impossibility. This law was not going to function without the assistance of the Confederate citizenry, and this law created criminal penalties for withholding this information. And so what it in effect did was it forced individuals to basically tell on other people, which means it not only forced individual A to say, I have an agreement with a northerner, but it forced individual C to say, I know individual A has an agreement and he's not, and he's not telling you. So in effect what it did was it, it, it ran the very real risk of turning the population on itself. I mean, it almost smacks of McCarthyism. So everyone has to, everyone had now an affirmative legal duty to reveal to the Confederate government 
of any alien property they knew about, including property that uh, their neighbor owned. Correct. And 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 so this, as you put it in the book, this really affects what kind of nation the Confederacy is going to be. Is it based on uh, traditional Southern concepts of honor? Uh, and community and a, a weak central state uh, with power located in, in uh, you know, decentralized in, in states and counties and cities, or is it going to be a, a powerful central government in which the citizens have no particular rights and are each informing on each other? It absolutely does. And, and I think even beyond that, if you, if you listen to the rhetoric that precedes the war, the, the, the Confederacy purports to be the entity that is, that is going to preserve true constitutional principles. That, that basically, you know, I guess, in, you know, to, to go back, way back, and, and, and paraphrase Bolingbroke, you know, that, that, that it's become corrupted, and it's become contaminated, and we are going, to, you know, to make sure that the, that the principles that once governed us are pure. And how can you do that if one of the first things that you do is violate some of those those inherent principles. And it put the Confederacy in an unbelievably difficult position um, intellectually and, 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 and governmentally. The, uh, the, there are people who resist. You mentioned lawyers. Uh, uh, lawyers are in a particularly difficult position because this law makes no uh, allowance for things like the attorney-client privilege. If an attorney knows privately that his client owns uh, or, or yeah, has jurisdiction or, or, or possession of alien property, the attorney has to turn that in. Or if the turn, attorney is a trustee uh, and holds something in trust, but it is northern property, they have to give that up too. That's exactly it. And, I mean, it, and in fact, that is one of the that is one of the the main reasons this thing is challenged, at least by the, by the lawyers, because they just basically take the position: is that look, you know, I understand that I have a an obligation to my nation. But I had a nation before this, and, and, and I took an oath as an attorney, and that oath at, at times goes beyond an obligation that I owe to a nation. You know, I have an obligation that is unique to this relationship that I have with my individual client, and that is to protect his secrets, and, 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 and if the secrets is the existence of property, and is to protect his communications, and essentially what, you, what, what this law is, is doing is going to require me to break another law and another oath that I swore. And this is what makes uh, the study of ethics, legal ethics, really any ethics so interesting, uh, is that it's not just doing the right thing, but what happens when you are forced to do something and either one is wrong. Uh, now you have a difficult choice. And, and that's what the attorneys are arguing here, the ones who, who challenge this in the, the sequestration cases that, that uh, come before a Confederate uh, district judge in 1861. They, they either have to, to, to violate this law. Now, I guess one counter-argument to that would be, well, okay, don't be a selfish attorney with your special privileges. Uh, it, it's either that or do what's right for the country. You should obviously do what's right for the country. But there's a counter-argument here that this law isn't what's right for the country. Uh, well, I think very much so. I mean, I, you know, what you what you you know it, it goes beyond you know the, the, the greedy attorney just trying to protect his own. It's the attorney-client privilege and the ability of attorneys to deal with clients transcends civil matters. It, it goes into criminal matters. I mean, it's 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 the thing that makes the system work. If I can be forced to break it here, then essentially it becomes meaningless everywhere. 
and more importantly, if, 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 if by fiat of law I can just be made to break an oath because it's convenient, then oaths have no meaning. And if you look throughout society, we take oaths all the time. We swear this document is true and correct. We swear that, that, that I, don't, I know of no other prior holders of this land. Um, you know, we swear to uphold, you know, uh, the, the, the Constitution. You know, it, in, in many ways it wasn't what was best because at a time when, I mean, because let's face it, and I get into this when I wrote about desertion, one of the big problems you've got right now is that the Confederacy in some ways was an idea. Whether or not it's going to be a nation, and a true nation, depends on whether or not the people who are, are protected and governed by it buy in to, to the notion of it as a government. How can you do that when one of the first things that you do is basically create a situation where you take your citizenry and put them at odds with one another? If, if uh, Well, one of the defendants... Uh in the case he describes, points out, if you're going to avoid the attorney-client privilege, then what if a, a husband knows that his wife owns alien property uh, or has, has, has possession of alien property? Are you saying that, that this law also trumps the marriage vow? Is, is all that, that would rip society apart, rip families apart. Uh, uh, does and, the I think he, and I really think he was absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I think, and, 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 I don't, and I don't think... And this, I think this happens a lot, and not just in the Civil War, but just with, in terms of government. No one had really thought it through. Exactly. You know, they, they knew what they wanted. They knew what they needed. They needed to do certain things, but no one had thought it through. Because, you know, the law is an insidious thing. Unless you're forced like you and I, or at least, I don't know, force is the right word, but compelled like you and I to go study it. The law is an insidious thing in the sense that it, it, it works its way into places that we don't even think that it exists until one day we wake up and want to do something with it. And suddenly we realize, well, wait a minute. We, we, we really can't do that. And I, and I think that that's what happens here. And I, I, and I, I, I had a lot of respect for the I – mean, I, I had a lot of respect for all of them. Um, Pettigrew – I had a lot of respect for it just simply because he had held his his principles going way back. He, he's one of the lawyers who challenges it. Yeah, he's one of the – in fact, he's yeah. the oldest lawyer that challenges it. And, and he, he had been a union man going way back. That was not a popular thing to be in South Carolina, obviously, in 1861. But he, he just stayed by his guns. Um, some of these other guys would uh, – I mean, Pettigrew dies before the, wars, before the war ends, but some of these other guys would eventually survive the war, and they would become, you know, integral parts of Reconstruction. I mean, they were Southerners, but the thing I like about it is that they were lawyers first, and they just said, you know, this is – you can't do this. You know, you, you didn't think this through. We understand that you have a goal here, but you can't turn people into traitors. And that's essentially – I mean, nobody ever said it in the trial. Nobody called these five lawyers traitors, but it was the elephant that was in the room. You know, if, if, if these guys are wrong, then essentially they've committed treason. Because and, they're not obeying the law. They're not turning in the property that right. they know about. Now, the uh, just a, another issue that, that, tangential to that is that, that they're not being paper money at the time. If somebody writes a note, a promise to pay – uh, that note can serve as currency. Uh, if, if you trust the person who's ultimately going to pay it, then I can give you my note, and if people trust me, you can give that note to someone else. Who can Absolutely. Give it to someone else. But if the original uh, uh, person it's paid to is a northerner, then it's 
falls under this law, and even though it's it's been circulated repeatedly, now suddenly it gets seized by the Confederate government, and the last holder is just out of luck. Yeah. Uh, it, it had all kinds of unintended consequences, in other words, it, it, as well. It was unbelievable. In fact, one of the things that, 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 uh, that the book points out was the degree to which tel- the, the entire telegraph system yes, was, yes. was essentially a Union and Southern co-enterprise owned by various different corporations. And what that meant, um, it, was, it was phenomenal. I mean, uh, you know, the probating of wills. Well, let me just, have a just, northern air. The, the, the telegraph bit, I want to comment on that, I thought was utterly fascinating. It's the telegraph running system running through the Confederacy during the war was Northern-owned, essentially. Uh, the Confederacy attempts to seize it under this law, but realizes it needs a working telegraph system. So they leave it there, and after the war, the Northern Company gets it back again. Uh, but nobody anticipated this or figured out how exactly to handle it. it it's just a... A remarkable uh, set of unintended consequences that that force uh, that, that that come into play here. Just just really a, a remarkable set of things. The thing that fascinated me about the, the program was um, was its breadth. I mean, I found records throughout the South, te- from Texas to Virginia, um, and these courts got after it. And, I mean, not all the records obviously survived, but from the records that I found, um, they raised a lot of money. Well, they, they had an almost unlimited power of discovery. They didn't need to bring a case first. They could simply ask a question. Do you have, uh, like you say in the Red Scare, are you now or have you ever been an owner of enemy property? And, and you have to tell them. Let me close. We're running, I know, near the end of our time here, but... Um, what what truly grabs me about this is that we we see today uh, there are some people whose understanding of the, the wartime era is perhaps not as deep as it ought to be, who have a fantasy of the Confederacy as a sort of neo-libertarian paradise where there's no strong central government. Uh, Lincoln is the evil central government man, but the Confederacy was uh, a place where the individual ruled. And in fact, this law shows it was quite the opposite. Uh, the individual rights were trampled on by the central government. I think it's one of the more – if you look at the laws passed on both sides during the entire course of the war – um, find me a law on either side that that is more draconian and, and is more um, governed by the control of the central government, north or south, than this one. I, I would agree with that. And I think, uh, listeners, if, if you're not familiar with the, this law in these cases, uh, the book is entertaining and readable and uh, will tell you all about it. Uh, it's called The Confederacy on Trial. The author is Mark Weitz. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected.